This morning, I want to start by asking you a question. What is your perfect picture of what a peaceful place looks like? If you've even seen something, maybe a, a picture of a place that you're like, oh my, if peace exists on this earth, it's probably there. A spa, okay. And I don't know if there's one specific or is it just generally spa? Okay, all right, I hear you. Anybody else in the sanctuary? Where's that place of peace? In the mountains, I hear you. Anybody else? Camping. There you go. I think we've got a lot of folks that have an idea of what peace looks like. So our question or our discussion this morning is going to come around. You know, I believe that we had a glimpse of what was what was intended for us. And that was a very peaceful existence. When you look back at humanity and the story of us being created, the story of us on this earth, in Genesis we look back. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. Genesis chapter 2, you're welcome to be there. It'll be up on the screen in front of you or you can scroll or turn there depending on where you may be. So Genesis chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 4. It is a place designed where you would be able to spend life in an absolute place of peace. Now when I was asking you a moment ago, we were asking about place all around the world. If I were to ask of like, in the scheme of time, I would imagine many of us would go back and say, you know what? The Garden of Eden was probably a place that was of like the absolute place of peace on earth, right? Now, we know it didn't last, and we'll talk about that in a minute, kind of how that influences our life today. But for Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, it'll be on the screen in front of you. And because we are scripture heavy this morning, and that we're going to be reading multiple passages, uh, you can call your attention to the screens, and we won't be up and down reading passages throughout the morning, okay? Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, it goes like this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree in the knowledge of good and evil. When you read about this place, you have to think to yourself, isn't this the place that would be described as like absolutely perfect? When you look back and you think about the Garden of Eden, what aspect? aspects of the Garden of Eden would you appreciate this morning that you're like, you know what? I could go for some of that. What would it be? No okay, David, I'm not going to lie. My ears aren't real good. I thought you said no Eve yet. <laughs> and I was like, bro, that's a bold statement this morning. That's a bold statement. Okay. <laughs> no, we, we, we are technically not there in the story yet. So I get you. Okay. <laughs> Uh, no weeds, nothing to, uh, n none of the gnarly stuff. I don't know that thistle had grown yet. You know, like those sorts of things that we just don't like. What else do you think about the Garden of Eden that you like? Lots of trees and? That's what I was thinking. My, how many of you are like, fruit is your thing? You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to tell you what, we had a mandate breakfast here a couple of days ago, and uh, we have a couple of, we're, we're grateful for this, even though we have a lot of very, very fun uh, banter back and forth. In the mornings while we're cooking, uh, Ray Fazell, uh, Landon Moore, Don Allsbrooks, Mike Miller, myself get here about five o'clock for those breakfasts. And I normally ask Ray sometime in the morning, Ray, are the Baptists coming? 
Are the Baptists coming is a question of, are Sam, is Sam and probably Dr. Martin coming from the Baptist? Because they've been coming to join us for breakfast for a while. Let me tell you what, Sam Fazell showed up this week and he said he got up at three o'clock in the morning to cut all this fruit. We all know better than that, okay? Uh, we know who's behind that and, and, and it's his, his blessed wife. But Sam shows up with a bowl of fruit and when I saw it, I thought, you know what? As good as all this bacon, egg, sausage stuff is, I could just sit there with a spoon in front of that bowl of fruit. Like, that's my thing, right? And when I think about the Garden of Eden, I'm like, that would have been amazing to walk around. What are some other things? One of them that I would say as well, I heard someone on the back porch this morning in a rush getting in and they made the statement, when I get to heaven, you know, they don't keep up with time in heaven, so I'll never be late again. And I thought, you know what? The Garden of Eden had to be similar to that. Like, how do you keep up with time really in a concern? I mean, other than we read in this about the, you know, man working the ground eventually, that was another discussion for another day. There wasn't exactly this need for time. And there wasn't this thing of like being pressed in deadlines and being late and all those sorts of things. Another thing I think that is very indicative of a place that is a very place of peace and a lack of worry and concern. We haven't mentioned this yet. They didn't wear clothes. Some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know that I'm down with that preacher. You want to know why you're not down with that? It's because you've grown up in a land of clothes. You know what I mean? Like, some of you think you are very uh, individualistic. You are absolutely not. You are a product of your environment completely through and through. And the fact that you have decided to wear what you have decided to wear is the, is the easiest illustration of you are a product of everything around you. Okay, so you've decided to do this. Now think with me for just a moment. In a system that is created where clothes are not necessary, what does that suggest to us and indicate to us about the nature of how they're living? They're just not worried about things. You know what I mean? Like, we wear clothes for a couple of purposes. One is probably because of weather. But two is because we have decided as a culture that there is shame in the bodies that God created. Now, granted, some of you are like, this preacher is not going on some trip where we need to create some clothesless community, okay? Like, I am just enough post-fall of man to be glad you're all in clothes, okay? Like, I don't know that we could recreate that system, but I'm just saying from a theoretical or from, a, from an elemental standpoint of like how they were created and what was going on, if you could remove all insecurities, well, like it just didn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, that's a place of peace. That's an exclamation point of like, you're not worried. I mean, what worries do you actually have in the Garden of Eden? And the answer is probably none. But like, I don't know that worry really had been introduced into the world. And the fact that these people are living in such a way is one of those things that's just absolutely beautiful. But one of the things that when we think about the way they, they were living is like, well, we must also look back and say, well, like, then what wrecked this beautiful existence of living? And many of you have read this story many, many times, or you've heard sermons about this story. You've heard people teach you about this story of like, well, what happened to wreck this existence of all the fruits you can eat and clothes not necessary? You know what I mean, what wrecked that? Well, you go to Genesis chapter two, skip down a few more verses, and it's in verse 15. We'll read that together as well. We'll read 15 uh, through 16. 17 in this segment. The Lord God took the man and put, in, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care of it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Some of us 
are willing to ask a difficult question. And that difficult question is, if God wanted to create a place of peace, why in the world did He put this tree in the middle in the first place? Or on the edge? Or wherever it was doesn't concern me. Why in the world would He put a stumbling block, a trip hazard, in the, in the presence of this beautifully created humanity? And people have struggled with this. In a lot of ways, you're asking the question as well. Uh, we read about the serpent here in just a few moments, and you ask this question of like, uh, of of why is it necessary? Well, one of the things I think that's necessary is for us to ask this question is saying like, why was evil allowed in this world? Why, why was something detrimental allowed in a place that was such peace? I mean, in many ways, humanity has been fighting and trying to get back to a place of, I don't know that utopia is the right word, but, but we've been trying to find that existence that was the pre-fall of man before the, the, this altercation and this, this interaction between evil and humanity in the garden. We've been struggling to try and find like glimpses and places of that. And the question is like, why in the world was it necessary? Well, I think in order to ask that question, you first have to ask this, what is the greatest gift that God gave humanity. What was the first gift He gave humanity? I'll give you one hint. He breathed life into the nostrils. Humanity was not going to simply be something of a, of, of a cast of dust that was formed together. And not to speak ill of the other things that God created, but everything else God spoke into existence. God breathed the breath of life into humanity when He created humanity. That's where our story began. And then in that as well, I would ask you then, what was the second greatest gift that God ever gave us? What is the second greatest gift that God ever gave humanity? Eve. Attaboy, David. Yeah, David's recovering from the weed conversation earlier. There you go. That's ex okay, so we'll assume that's the second one. Then I'll ask you now, what's the third greatest gift? The third greatest gift was evil. Some of you are like, but I don't like what evil does in my world. I don't like what happens. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the third greatest gift, if it is breathing the, the breath of life and then giving us uh, uh, humanity together, then the third greatest gift, the next in the line. I know some of you are like, what about Jesus? Hey, Jesus isn't necessary in the story at this point, okay? Not saying that that wasn't the greatest movement of God, but in this point in the story when we're reading, God had to first breathe life and then first give us the gift of choice in order to give us Jesus later on. Okay, I'm not negating Jesus whatsoever, but I'm saying in the story, breathing life is the first and greatest gift, and then evil is the next gift that he gives us because without it we are nothing but pre-programmed robots, and in that there is no love. If you have nothing else to choose, you are simply following a course that has been planned for you there, there is only beauty found in the struggle, folks. There's only beauty found in the working, in, 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 the, in the toiling through things, because otherwise you never had a choice in the first place, and all you're doing is simply existing. And I'm going to tell you this morning, someone built this table. Someone built this pulpit over 100 years ago, and it was beautiful to bring it to life out of huge chunks of wood. As a matter of fact, the center section of this thing is one milled piece of lumber, somewhere around 20 inches wide. It's beautifully built and all that. But you know what? It has no real existence because it doesn't have life. It doesn't have the choice to make a bad decision. The fact that God gave us the choice to make a bad decision means that evil was necessary. That, that the Garden of Eden, even with the thing that could make us stumble, is a great statement of love because now we have an ability to choose Him back. Otherwise, there is no choice and we're simply following along in the, in the pre-programmed system that we've been a part of. 
Folks, one of the things that we talked about, and when I asked what was the next greatest gift, I heard someone out there say the words free will. And you need to know that God giving you the choice to choose Him or not choose Him is one of the greatest gifts that a Creator could ever give His, his, his creation. It's a beautiful statement to say that God allows you to look at Him and say no. To look at Him and say no thanks. To look at Him and say like, I don't care. As much as that seems it is sacrilegious, but as much as it seems the antithesis to peace, it is actually what, what gives us the beauty of creation, that God has created that. So then let's, let's look back and say, since evil was necessary, then what must we learn about the nature of evil to make us more successful in living this life in such a way that like, okay, we've recognized now that God gave us life and after giving us life, he must also give us a choice. And so evil has been there. Some people struggle over the words created or allowed evil. I simply don't care. It exists. Amen. No matter how that came about, evil exists. And in the existence of evil, the next question is, then how will we, humanity, deal with evil in such a way that we are able to live more in a Garden of Eden and less in the chaos that evil wants us to live in? And so let's look back at the story, Genesis chapter 3. Let's ask the next question in this. Then what can we learn about evil that will help us to live? I'm going to make a strong case this morning. Help us to live the way that God wanted us to live in the first place, which is what? Enjoying His creation, taking care of it, not having the, the pressures and the stresses that we've created. As a, as, a, as a creation, we are the architects of our own agony. Amen? We like to blame things on other folks, but like the reality is we've done this to ourselves. As a species, we did this to ourselves. And so the question is, then, then how will we do better at this life to somehow live more closely to how the original intent of humanity's relationship with God was meant to be? So let's look back for just a moment at the Genesis chapter 3 story. This is when it teaches us a little bit more about the nature of how evil works in our world and how it wants to destroy us. Now the serpent, Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. One of the, the ironies and the, the funny parts of this story to me is the nature of humanity hiding from God. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever gone through your house and you have uh, one of your kids decides they're going to scare you? you know, and, they, and they hide behind doors, those sorts of things. They, they hide behind curtains. My favorite one is when they're hiding behind the curtains and you walk into a room and you can see the curtain shaking and you can see toes sticking out from underneath. You know what I mean? Or like you hear them snickering behind the door before you ever get there. It's probably one of the closest glimpses you have to God walking through the garden going, where are you, Adam? 
know, where are you guys? It's like, come on, do you think God doesn't know where they are? You know, I mean, like, he made everything there. And in the, in the ridiculousness of humanity to be like, here, he won't see us. You know, like, we'll hide behind the tree that he put here. You know, like, this is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. But, but in the story that you read, you start realizing that the interaction with evil is one. And one of the first things I would say is that sin is oftentimes, if not every time, not an instantaneous thing, but it is a progression that we work ourselves through to choose other than God. Temptation leads us, or curiosity, either way, lead us to a proverbial tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then as we look at those things, I mean, think about how many times in your life that you have done sinful acts And it started in a place of temptation slash curiosity. And then your mind began to work in such a way that you minimized how big of a deal this was. And have you ever seen something that was sinful and as you began to justify it, it was because you minimized this is not really that big of a deal. Then as you minimize it, minimization, minimalization leads to justification. You justify that in your head to do it. And then you are rationalizing this action that needs to happen. And after you have worked through all those steps, then you have, you have, you have realized, done the realization, you, you've justified the work, you've rationalized the work, and now now all of a sudden it's time to jump off and do the foolishness that you have been, been curious about, the thing that you've minimalized. Brian Harden, when talking about the rebellious nature of humanity in working through this, says these words, the juice of rebellion that flowed into their bodies was fatal to their souls. The juice of rebellion. I think it's a great question to ask us this morning. In what ways have you experienced the juice of rebellion that led to being fatal to your soul? Because not one of us in this room escaped from that reality. From this point forward, one of the things that I think is necessary for us as a congregation to to recognize in the story is the nature of how this is a beautiful story that gives us how evil is showing us its hand in how to defeat us. How many of you are board game playing folk? Any of you card game playing folk? You know? Yeah, so there you go. Okay, big card game playing folk. I, I hear you. And, and so uh, I, have, I happen to tell you, I'm not a real big card game folk or a big board game folk, but if you talk me into doing it, let me promise you one thing. I am playing to win, and I am playing to cheat and win. Because to me, board games and card games are not that much fun. Cheating and winning, that makes it fun. Some of you are like, I cannot believe this is such an, it's not immoral, come on. You're deciding to play a game that really means nothing, so if I decide I'm gonna play it differently, you can't get mad at me because now it means something to me because I'm gonna see if I can get away with this. So I used to play card games with teenagers when I was in youth ministry. I would cheat those kids so bad, <laughs> they'd end up winning and they were like, he's the greatest card player ever. No, y'all just don't pay attention. You know what I mean? Like, if you ever lean forward and I have a chance to see what cards you have, oh, I'm looking. You better believe it. And I'm gonna use that to manipulate you and I'm going to beat you and you're gonna wonder, It's almost like he knows what was in my hand. Yep, almost. You know, that's how I play the game. Let me tell you something about evil this morning. He shows you his hand, okay? He shows you his hand on how he will destroy humanity if given the chance. And so like, what are the characteristics of how evil shows its hand at destroying humanity? And one of those things that that we need to get our minds wrapped around is this, is that when we begin to get in the cycle of selfishness and selfish gain, it is one of the first places that evil will destroy us. Think for just a moment. When you think about how evil tries to to destroy you, it is typically in trying to get you to focus on what it gives you as your needs. Is there any argument in this story that Eve needed that tree? 
Her needs were met. She had communion with God. Everything was peaceful and going fine. And yet somehow evil was able to sell her a bill of goods that no, 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 this is what you need because of what it will give you. So ultimately when she's wanting to eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, what is she ultimately wanting? To gain wisdom. You understand? Like there is a selfish nature within this. And every time that we are driven by selfish nature, we need to be very, very careful to be thinking about in that, in that taking care of self. There are so many things in, the, in our stories and in our own lives that are based in us wanting to gain for ourselves and, in, and not recognizing that that's not what we were made to do. Like, we were made and originally put in a garden to take care of the garden that was there and to have communion and fellowship with each other and God and, and have our needs met by God. So when we begin to get our attention off of that communion and fellowship with each other and with God and start focusing on ourselves, it's one of the biggest initial red flags we can be worried about. Think with me again about the sinful acts in your life, the mistakes that you've made. I would imagine that the vast majority, if not all, began in some form of a selfish nature. You wanting to take care of self. And it is the nature of how evil wants to speak to us. And the second one that I need to spend just a little bit more time in this morning is this, because it is it is paramount. It, it is it is the, the, the cornerstone of how we live and how we do this life. I know that this Bible, that the Bible when we read it, talks about Adam and Eve in a state and in a sense of being with each other, that they were together, that they were around each other. But when you read this interaction, is there any interaction between evil and the man in the story? Any interaction. I know there have been some great jokes and some things made about, you know, uh, uh, women being the one to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it kind of creates this, you know, kind of back and forth between men and women in, in a kind of a, a gender fun back and forth. But let me tell you something, regardless of who ate of the apple, you cannot get a, no, the apple. It's not even an apple. Uh, that's one of those things you've been programmed. Just like clothes, you've been programmed to think it's an apple. It's not an apple, all right? You, you operate in, in such a way that, that when you separate, then, you, then you, you become weaker by being on your own. This is not a throwing rocks at the female gender in the story. It is illustrating that when evil wants to destroy you, it separates and isolates you. When evil wants to tear you apart, it puts you on an island to defend for yourself, to defend yourself. Look for just a moment at the amount of people that you have known. I'll go back to saying, we think we're a lot more strong and individualistic than we are. How many people have you known that have moved away to another community, uh, maybe college campus, maybe a job, and then when you meet them a year later, they talk differently than they did when they left. How many of you are comfortable enough in your own skin to admit you've done it? How many of you have moved somewhere and you start dressing differently? All of a sudden your views change. Folks, it negates that you, this, this lie that we buy into, that like I am myself and I am me and I take, you know, like I think for myself, come on, you are way more influenced by your surroundings than you want to acknowledge. And when you isolate from the community of faith and from the, the being together, when you isolate from that, it absolutely sets you up for failure. It sets you up to be tripped and to be mistaken. You are 100% weaker on your own. And one of the other things that has to be illustrated in this, you want to know how evil has a way of destroying, absolutely ripping apart separate husband and wife. We need to be very aware in the next few moments that there's likely none of us in this room that gets away from being influenced or affected by divorce. So I don't want to speak about what sins of the past. It's not what we're going to talk about this morning. What I want to take a moment to speak about is the nature of you and your spouse as you sit right now. Before that, it's not even on the table for discussion right now. If you're not married at this current juncture, then we're going to have discussions about maybe how that could happen in the future and the things you need to be thinking 
thinking about or looking forward to or, or, or planning for, one of the realities is you want to destroy humanity, then destroy that family unit and begin to cause division among man and woman. Because I'm going to tell you, there is nothing more formidable of an opponent of evil than a solid man and woman who are after the heart of God. Nothing more. It is the foundational building block for the society that you live in and the way that God organized the system together. I recognize this morning that as you may look at your husband or your spouse, you relate to that old saying of men are from Mars and women are from Venus. You know what I mean? Like you're from different places. And as much as that may frustrate you to no end from time to time, the reality is it is in that toil that beauty is found. It is in that toil that... that that the building block of how God established our life to go, it, it, is, it is foundational to who we are. One of the things that you see in the story is, if I'm going to destroy the place of peace and relationship, I'm going to separate them from God, the first thing I must do is separate these first two from each other. And when I begin to separate them from each other, then I can start doing the work to destroy. Folks, the, this data that is beginning to come out and has been available for years, but some more in the last 10 years has been made, made known, even from a scientific or sociological study or, or, or an anthropological study of like humanity and people and how we operate in society. When you study those things, we recognize that people who come from, unfortunately, they come from single family homes, single uh, parent homes, have a much harder road than people who come from two loving parents who are in the same house. I know it's not what you all chose. I know some of you, somebody else made a decision that's where you left this story this morning is not about guilt in that discussion. This part of the story is about those of you who are married or who plan to be married. I need you to hear this morning that fighting for your marriage is the best thing you can do for this world. And it is, I don't like the word fight, but I need you to know that from the beginning, evil's plan has been to separate them so that I can break them. That's been the plan. If I can separate them, then I can break them. And so those of you who walked into the sanctuary or driving down the road this morning or who are listening at home and you're hearing the story, you know what it means to fight for, the, for something that you work for. I, I, I said something the past, this past week that I, I felt immediately guilty for and, and guilty in that it was incorrect. Someone was asking, you know, that I'm building a house there was a moment when Stephanie and I were up at the house and we were about to walk out the door and I had one of those just moments where I looked around and realized I'm in the last 5 to 10% of the building process. It's weird feeling. It's something that I've dreamed of doing since I was three years old. I watched my dad build his own house when I was three, one of my first memories, and I'm standing at a place where like one of those life dreams that I quite frankly put off to the side and said would never happen because I just like made peace with it. I'm not ever going to build my own house. Not a big deal. And then all of a sudden like I find myself in this place now where like I've been able to do it. And the vast majority of it has been with my two hands, which is the way I wanted to do it. Me personally, that's how I wanted to do it. And Stephanie, she looks around for a second, she goes, you've almost done it. And I said, this will be one of the greatest and hardest things I've ever done. And I took a few steps and it was like this gut-wrenching thing in me like, no, no, no. Building a house is foolishness. The greatest and one of the hardest things you will do is make a commitment to that of another gender and stay with them for life. That's work. And it's beautiful. And it is only in the work that you find immense beauty. A guy by the name of John Burroughs one time long ago, he was an essayist and naturalist who traveled with the likes of Teddy Roosevelt. He made this statement, for anything worth having, one must pay the price and the price is always work, 
patience, love, and self-sacrifice. No paper currency, no promises to pay, but the gold of real service. This morning, I need us to look back into the story of Genesis to be reminded that evil would love nothing more, O married individuals, than to begin to illustrate your partner's flaws or do something to drive a, a wedge between you and that person that you're married to because it is the foundational building block to the existence that God designed for us. It doesn't mean that outside of that, I, again, please, those of you that are not married right now, do not allow your minds to run down roads that I'm not talking about because it's a big temptation for people. This statement is about those of you that are married. I need you to hear it is worth fighting for. Amen? It is worth working for. It is worth staying in the toils of, of two very oftentimes opposites working together for something good because that's the way God designed us to be. Don't allow evil to split you up. God, we come before you this morning recognizing that in the story of the Garden of Eden is a story that teaches us about the nature of evil and how evil likes nothing more than to separate us, to isolate us, and to break us down and separate us from you ultimately. And this morning, God, if we find ourselves as individuals focusing on selfish things, being driven by selfish motivations, remind us that this is how evil starts. God, as well this morning, for those who are listening in a part of this sermon and are, are doing so as a, a part of a married union, God, would you remind them that even in the beginning, the first thing evil wanted to do was to separate so that he could then divide and conquer. Would you help us to work diligently on our marriages, to guard them, to take care of them, to take care of our spouses? God, so that from this point forward, we recognize it's not just a marriage, but it's the foundational building block of how God knit this system together. We love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.